Hello, I'm Mark Koskila, and I'm delighted that you're joining me for another episode of The Gold Podcast. My co-host Helena is currently away, but we have an excellent episode lined up, including a feature-length interview with Magnus Bjorsner, CEO at AstraZeneca's BioVenture Hub. But for now, let's kick things off with a special diabetes focus, things you might have missed. Now, I'm delighted to be joined by Jade Williams from the Gold Team for this segment. So, Jade, what's been happening in the diabetes landscape recently? Hi, Mark. Great to be here. One story that caught my eye this week was that NICE, that's the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, released new recommendations for people living with type 1 diabetes in the UK. For the first time ever, NICE has announced new guidance recommending the use of real-time continuous glucose monitoring, or RTCGM, for adults and children, which would give people with type 1 diabetes on-demand information about their current blood glucose levels through their phones. That's right. Patients will now have a choice between RTCGM technology and intermittently scanned glucose monitoring devices, also known as flash monitoring devices, when discussing treatment options with their diabetes team. If chosen, the RTCGM monitor is attached discreetly to the person's body and collects current, previous and predicted glucose levels, which are then transmitted to their phone. The system also features active alert systems, which can warn users of any incoming changes to their blood sugar. Amazing, isn't it? Previously, NICE only recommended this sort of technology for adults in certain circumstances, but this new technology can be accessed by most patients. Its introduction means that people living with type 1 diabetes won't have to monitor their condition through finger prick testing as frequently. Now, speaking of finger prick testing, Diabetes UK recently announced results from a clinical trial they funded researching the benefits of flash monitoring technology against traditional finger prick testing. The trial revealed that the sensor technology not only helped to improve blood sugar levels in people with type 1 diabetes, but also had an overall positive effect on their quality of life. Currently, about half the people living with type 1 diabetes in the UK are prescribed flash on the NHS, so it will be great to see how this develops after these findings, especially as the device was also found to be cost-effective. Moving further afield, I read an article recently on Abbott's Freestyle Libra flash monitoring device becoming the first and only CGM system to gain reimbursement coverage in Japan to include all people with diabetes who use insulin at least once a day. This expanded coverage is great news and means more people will have access to easier glucose monitoring in their day-to-day lives. This reimbursement expansion came into effect on the 1st of April and was granted by the Japanese Ministry of Health, Labour and Welfare based on Freestyle Libra's value proposition, which includes the technology's easy-to-use features and scientific evidence showing the benefits of using the system. Doctors expect that this adoption will lead to better management of patients' overall conditions and a reduction in the future risk of diabetes-related health complications. It's great to see such a range of initiatives across the globe toward improved diabetes care. 100% and thank you Jade for all your help this week. Next up, I'm delighted to share a discussion I had with Magnus Bjorsner, CEO of AstraZeneca's BioVenture Hub, an initiative at its Gothenburg campus that allows smaller biotechs and academic groups to work alongside the minds of AstraZeneca. Magnus is a seasoned veteran at the company, having worked there for over 20 years, holding a variety of director-level roles. Now, I caught up with Magnus on a range of topics, including the changing pace of digital innovation through the pandemic and the potential healthcare systems of the future. I hope you enjoy. Magnus, thank you so much for joining us today on the Gold Podcast. It's great to have you on this episode. Uh, Firstly, before we start, how are you? I'm fine. The sun is shining and it's a good Monday. Excellent. And you're you're dialing in from uh, Gothenburg? 
Yes, Gothenburg on the west coast of Sweden, and I'm actually, as many of us, still working remote today, so all good. Excellent, excellent. Well, to kick us off then, as CEO of AstraZeneca's BioVenture Hub, how is your day-to-day role affected by the pandemic? Oh, where to start? I I think to all of us, the pandemic has, of course, brought with it a number of challenges. And I think for, for me personally, it made me reflect upon what's really important and what role does actually leadership play in that equation. And I think there are two aspects of this that has stuck with me. And, and one is, of course, the emphasis on, on colleagues and the well-being of employees and what way you deal with that when you actually don't see each other on a daily basis. And I think that made us made some changes, which I think and hope will stay once we go back to the new normal. The other thing that really struck me is the fact that how important it is with clarity on objectives when you don't have the opportunity to chat on an everyday basis. It's so important that we know why we do things and with what purpose. And and I don't think there were any discussion on what the purpose has been during the pandemic. I also think that as being a leader, since, since that was the question, I think you, you get reminded on the fact how you make decisions. Because when you work remote, you are very much by yourself and you realize how dependent you are on others in the way you operate. And to me, it really showed the importance of colleagues and teamwork, even the way when you get to decisions. To do that without your colleagues, it becomes very, very difficult. And in that sense, I think it tells us that innovation and, and I mean, what we do, it's really a contact sport. And you need that contact in order to stay creative. Uh, we, we did some measurements on creativity in our organization, and it was quite interesting to see that, you know, maintaining operations has worked very, very well. But the way we interact when it comes to creativity suffered. And it was evident from, I mean, when you notice the number of ideas that has been generated. And I think I'm really longing to getting back because I don't think we can continue to be innovative if we don't meet up. So you were just talking there about how innovation is a contact sport. How did you overcome that during the the pandemic in in a digital sense, I guess? Honestly, I don't think we did. I think we have been worse off when it comes to creativity. Uh, it's not easy to raise your hand in a Teams meeting and wait five minutes and remember the idea that popped into your head. So I think we have suffered from that. And, and the way we have dealt with it is, of course, to, to really have much more frequent planned interactions than we normally have, because that's the only way we meet. And even without a set agenda to keep keep in touch and, and explore ideas. But it I think it has been difficult. And I don't think that it doesn't matter how good, well, maybe it does, but at least today, I don't think there are any digital platforms that can replace the personal meeting. Such a, an interesting way to kind of look at it. Um, now, obviously, with the pandemic, it's obviously been well documented that it's also placed a strain on on healthcare systems worldwide, particularly in relation to delays for treatment. So in, in your view, how else have these ecosystems been impacted? I think so. So, so we we house a number of of scale up companies inside AstraZeneca, and we support them. And I think it's evident that 
I mean, the patient part is, is evident that, I mean, there has been delay in treatments and, and early diagnosis and what have you. A lot of cues has been created. But if we look on the way we interact with the healthcare system, I think I noticed some differences between how it has affected a big pharma company like AstraZeneca versus the scale-up companies, which normally are on a much tighter agenda and with a very different type of budget than we normally have. And I think besides shortage of, of supply when it comes to lab equipment, I think the main difference has been, I mean, the way we can conduct clinical trials, because, I mean, there has been some significant delays for, for good reasons. And I think that that has been difficult for the small companies to cope with that. I also think that the situation has revealed in what way the system is vulnerable. And, and I think we hopefully have learned that this actually goes beyond the healthcare system itself. It, it has to do with, I mean, areas such as overall economic progress, trust in governments and trust in authorities, the whole social cohesion, the way we perceive that has been impacted. On the other hand, I think it's important to say that it has also brought some really good insights. For example, the way telemedicine and artificial intelligence have been able to to support healthcare and play a significant role during this period. It has really helped us to reduce treatment gaps. It has been, I think, evident in every country you look up on this. I also think, to me, the way we came together, together with healthcare providers to solve this problem, I mean, the way authorities collaborated, the way competitors suddenly were no longer competitors. We shared data, we shared insights, we shared ideas. And I really hope that we will remember what made this possible. And it was the way we choose to collaborate with each other to solve this problem. And, and I think looking forward, I don't think healthcare will be about medicines in isolation. It will be about combining what we do on, on an everyday basis together with digital solutions and, and sensor technology and tech in general. I don't think that we as an industry can develop those type of, of solutions in isolation. We need to continue to interact across industry sectors in order to, to make that type of innovation come to, to, to reality. And in that, I think the healthcare professionals are super important and the patients are super important. And if we can keep that open mentality towards sharing insights and collaborating, I think this pandemic will make a big contribution to the way we proceed with innovation in totality, its totality, as to speak. So, so in your view, how can the the industry keep that collaboration going and, and not kind of slip back to that old normal? Are there any kind of ideas in your head about how, how we can avoid that? I, to some extent, I think it's about having the guts to, I mean, we spend a lot of time discussing what, what to innovate, what problem to solve for, what collaborations to enter, what have you. If we, I think what we have done during the pandemic is to some extent focus on the how dimension. And I think we should be better in balancing what with how. I mean, for example, what, what we did when we introduced the BioVenture Hub some seven years ago was to basically ask ourselves, can we introduce the sharing economy into industry and use domain expertise and human capital as the currency instead of dollars? Can we find a way to collaborate where we don't compete, but rather complement each other? 
And I think if you look on what we are facing as challenges, it's all about complementarity. And I think industry really needs to step up in, in showing openness. Just look on data. What, what if we could use the data pools we are sitting on in a way and share them in order to catalyze innovation? Look on our compound bank, which we are sitting on a gold mine and we don't use it. We need to find ways to, to basically open up. I, I really believe in that because it has been so evident during the pandemic what, what comes out of, I mean, the power of togetherness, as to speak. It's hard, hard to disagree with, with that one. Talking of kind of positive change and within healthcare systems as well, emerging from this pandemic, do you think there's other elements, other positive elements and other positive changes that you've seen that, that can be built upon as well? Oh, there is a lot. Uh, <laughs> where to start, Mark? I, I think there are some, some clear learnings coming out of, of the period we have been through in terms of the way we were able to collaborate. And, and I think I go back to what I said before. If I mean, authorities share data between US and Europe. It has never happened before. We share data with competitors. It has never happened before. And I think disease is too important not to, to work in that way, if you ask me. And I think we need to provide and, and capture the learnings and put them into some type of framework. Otherwise, we will revert to the normal, which is perhaps not the best way of working. And also, I think the clarity on, on objectives has been so clear to me. How I, I mean, nobody questioned what we have been doing during the pandemic. It, it's about beating that bloody virus. Everybody has the same agenda. And if we can be a bit clearer on why we do things jointly and even between us as organizations, I think that will pave the way for new ways of working together. I don't really know how to answer that question, Mark, because I think there are so many learnings that, that came out of this. And, and to me, they are all positive, actually, because we know now what we are able to do. And it shows us how adaptable we are when we are really pushed. I mean, that goes for both us as individuals, but also for, I mean, a large organization like ours, the way we have been able to change in such a short period of time. Imagine if that happened in the automotive industry, we would not have the problems with the environment. If we can beat the virus in nine months, they should be able to solve gasoline in two years, I think. I, I agree. I guess it's that, that clarity of, of purpose and you know, as a as a, a Formula One fan, just to, to cite your automotive example, they switch the rules and you've got these incredibly intelligent engineers who can suddenly fix things that, that were never never could have been done before. So back in 2014, the move to, to kind of um, some extremely energy efficient engines and, and heat loss recovery, etc. So I wonder whether it, you, you kind of mentioned it really, it's clarity of purpose and, and then that kind of sets that sets the agenda that everybody can focus towards and, and aim towards. Yeah, and I think that that is different for all of us. But I think it's, one perspective of this is, is short-term versus long-term. And I think we are very good at here and now and what. But we, we I think the way we are redefining, I mean, what innovation actually means in healthcare, it's quite interesting to see the way we need to balance, let's call it exploitation with exploration. 
And the, the realization that the areas we need to explore going forward are much, much more diverse than we are used to. It requires new ways of, of working. We, we can take a simple example. When you bring together the IT sector with pharma and you realize that the business logics are so different. So if we truly should innovate together, we need to find new ways of doing that because Again, as an example, if we tell, tell an IT company that should we collaborate, it will take eight years to reach the market, they will leave the room. I mean, their idea will probably be obsolete in three years. So how should we mix these different type of competences when the business logics are so different? And it requires a total new perspective on, I mean, everything from how we perceive exclusivity versus complementarity the way we define competition, it just becomes so different when you start to look across different industry verticals. And I think that's where we are heading. And then on top of that, you have the need to integrate healthcare providers into this. And I think it's super exciting. And there's so much opportunity if we just dare to do things differently. To add on the complexity, I think healthcare, I mean, it's not a homogeneous system. I mean, a solution that works in the western part of Sweden, we probably not work in the US because there are different perspectives on both regulatory aspects, the way healthcare providers operate, the way the payment system works. So there is not one uniform solution here. And I think that introduces yet another dimension into this discussion, which is super interesting. Will we become much more, you know, parochialized or whatever you should call it in developing these solutions? Or will it become more global? Who knows? So if you had to envision a new healthcare system for the future, kind of taking the, some of the elements there that we've, we've talked about, what, what were the key elements that you would take for it and, and, and how would it be different to now? I mean, on, on the big picture, I think, as I said before, Mark, it, it will, at least for us, it will not be about developing and providing medicines in isolation. And we will increasingly see value proposition that is a combination of medicine with sensors and devices and with innovative digital solution. And you could argue that we are going from sick care to healthcare. And if we ask ourselves what that actually means with respect to what data do we collect, what way do we conduct clinical studies? And if you on top of that put the fact that imagine a situation where we in the future, we're not any longer getting paid per pill, we are getting paid per outcome, which I think really makes sense. How does that change the way we operate as an organization? And that in turn, now I move back to the, this, where we started with leadership. I mean, if you look into large organizations, a lot of people that has been promoted has been so because they are good in dealing with the efficiency of system and operations and processes. And if we believe that, I mean, AI and machine learning will play the role we think it will, those methods will probably be better in optimizing any factory than any human being. And this means that in turn, we need to complement existing leadership with leadership, which is about orchestrating creativity and innovation, which is super different compared to optimizing processes. And we need both of them, these simultaneously. And I think it, it really introduces a nice stretch in any organization and any type of collaboration when you try to mix these two dimensions or these two philosophies. And on top of that, 
I don't think that R&D will have a monopoly on innovation going forward. It's equally important in the part of the organization that work with logistic support as it is with our commercial organization. And to make it yet even further complicated, across all of this, you, you, you put digitalization. Who, who is owning that in today's environment? Is it the IT department? Is it R&D? Who is it? It spans everything. So I think we are, if you are into leadership and the study of leadership management, it, it's, it's like the perfect storm. I mean, we are pushed by technology and we are pulled by both patients and payers at the same time. And everything is in flux and it's super interesting. No, definitely, definitely. And from a pharma perspective, so what kind of steps do you think the pharma industry and its stakeholders need to take to make this potential healthcare ecosystem a reality? I think we, we, we need to, and this is my very personal opinion, I must say, I, I think we need to be better in, in allowing ourselves to, 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 to not just play the safeguards. And we all know that there are no safeguards in pharma. We, we really need to explore innovation in a different way. And we need to find ways of doing that in such a way that we minimize risk in doing it. And, and to me, it goes back again to, to the, the formats of collaboration. And I think we have locked ourselves into a, a mentality which excludes disruptive innovation. I will give you an example. I mean, in most organizations, when you want to make an investment, which any engagement is, what you normally do is to build a business case. And that business case at some point contains an estimate on return on investment. And that in turn means that you have anticipated the outcome of the endeavor even before you start it. And if we look into the definition of disruptive innovation, it is exactly that it's not possible to predict. So we basically say no to everything we don't understand. And I think we need to find parallel processes where we can engage in the unknown to, in, a, in a more efficient way than we do today. And that's where I think it's only the big corporations that have the muscles to do that. You can't put that responsibility on the biotechs and the healthcare sector because they are not geared up to do it. So I think industry has a huge and a very important role to play in allowing ourselves to, to move into the future. And, and for those those smaller organizations that you said, you know, it's obviously a challenge to to try and make those kind of gambles, for want of a better phrase. How how do you think they can be empowered to, to innovate more kind of moving forward? I think when it comes to the way we interact with small companies, we are basically in the trust business. I mean, for example, the companies that sits within our organization, they put themselves in the belly of Goliath when they move into AstraZeneca. So, so it's really about creating and building trust. And I think you can do that both by, by the soft and, and unseen ways, but you can also do it from a more apparent way. And what we have tried to do is to take competition out of the equation. And then it becomes very evident that the threat of, of interacting becomes less apparent if you take that part out of the equation. So I think we need to ask ourselves how we can unlock openness. And, and to me, it's very much about the trust component. And here again, I think we have to take the first step having the muscles we have. 
And how do you then create trust? I think you do it by getting to know each other. And then I don't mean to, to you know, to meet at the partnering meeting and, and discuss science for 30 minutes and then make a verdict whether it's valid or not. It's, it's about pers- personal relationships. And I mean, again, what we, we have our scientists today on an everyday basis, they interact with 30 plus entrepreneurial companies in a very, very loose and uncontrolled way. And I think that's how you build trust by getting to know each other. And I, I ask yourself, I mean, if you were to plan your marriage and the outcome of that, even before you go to church, I don't want to be in such a marriage. And it's the same with partnerships. They need to mature over time and we need to create platforms that allow us to, to interact more like human beings than organizations, if I put it in, in, in bad language. Final question from me, and I, I certainly couldn't let you go without asking this. What's been your favorite innovation that you've seen over the past couple of years? Oh, there are more than one. Can I take two? Oh, you can take two. Go on. No, I think one. And, and I will actually pick up innovation that is from outside AstraZeneca because we have a lot of great innovation. But I think to put it in context of this discussion, I will give you two examples one, one is a US-based company that were trying to work with a methodology to, they were active in cybersecurity and, and they were trying to find a way to detect whether you were typing on my computer without using cameras and fingerprints and what have you. And what they did was to develop, so this was all about cybersecurity. So what they did was to develop a methodology to, to basically track fingerprint patterns when you type on a dashboard and it turns out that we all type with different pauses between the g and h letter or what have you so they could build these patterns based on typing the way you type on on your computer and they very soon realized that it was evident if the typer had had two glasses of wine and then they realized that if they can use typing patterns to track a change in cns you know, effects. And we, we realized that could you use this rather than as a tools for detecting whether I was typing on your computer, could you use this methodology to track the onset and, and the change in, in, in behaviors among patients? And that company today are have branched into two separate segments of industries. One is still cybersecurity, but the other one is, is using this fingerprint pattern as a means to detect CNS disorders. And they have received a fast track from FDA because they can detect the onset of Alzheimer's before any biomarker known today. And to me, I think the beauty of that innovation is the way it has been moved from one purpose into a total different setting where probably the value is much greater and this talks to, towards this of sector convergence. I think the second innovation, which I think is, is at least that has been very, has impressed me a lot. This is a product that we did in AstraZeneca. And it was about, we, we had a, a need to develop, to support the clinical program. We needed to produce a lot of different sized capsules. And we realized that instead of doing 15 different tablet sizes, we, we made a device that could dispense, you know, the, the granulates you have inside these capsules. And then the, the clinical program 
got terminated and this innovation was sitting on the shelf. And we then asked ourselves, can we reformat this innovation into something very different? And to make a long story short, to that, today that innovation has been the basis for the creation of, of a company that has taken forward a disposable dispenser used in HDAD, hyperactivity in kids, where they can basically provide individual dosing with a biosensor that controls who is taking the drug. And all these medicines are basically a different type of amphetamine derivatives. And they have also introduced a digital solution for monitoring the kids' behaviors. And all in all, what was a, a, a device is now a combination of a digital platform together with a personalized dispenser that controls both compliance and adherence and safety. And it's again, I mean, the way we combine insights into total new value propositions. And that's only possible when you create a diverse environment of skills and ideas. And sadly, that brings us to the end of today's episode. A big thanks to Magnus and to Jade for coming on the show. And thank you to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from if you haven't done so already. Otherwise, stay safe and I look forward to seeing you next week. Mm-hmm.